You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So I am what you might call directionally impaired. Is, is anybody else, just by a show of hands, directionally impaired? Some hands went immediately up, right? Um, I'm terrible with, with directions, okay? Um, when I began driving in high school, it took me like three months to find out how to, to remember how to get from my house to the high school. And I thought about this the other day. It was three turns. Left out of the neighborhood, right on Castleberry, go through downtown, left into the parking lot. That was it. But I, I would have to... Everywhere I went, I'd have to print up MapQuest directions. You guys remember MapQuest? Yeah, that was awesome. Um, now, thankfully, GPS came along and then smartphones came along, making, making these things very, very easy, right? And so I could not imagine driving around greater Boston without GPS, right? I have to, I have to go to Brookline about you know, once a week. I have to go this afternoon. And the other day, someone's like, oh, which way do you go from Waltham? And I was like... I have no idea. I type it in, I press enter, and we drive, and 30 or so minutes, I'm there, right? It's, GPS is a wonderful thing. It's like a part of our lives now. We don't even have to think about directions, but even GPS fails, right? You guys have had this happen where you're driving, and you, you go into a tunnel, right? Or you're in the city trying to navigate around, and the signal is interrupted by buildings, high-rises, and all of a sudden, you're, you're lost, and you, you have... No, no way to go. So even if you're directionally impaired and you have the help of a GPS, there's limits of GPS as well. And as I think about where we are in Ecclesiastes, this is really similar to the way that the preacher has been speaking to us from this book, isn't it? He, he's, he's shown us that life is difficult. Right? These are some of the, the drums that he's beating over and over again. It's very tough to, to navigate. There's suffering that seems senseless. There's pain. There is work that seems meaningless. There is our own sinfulness, broken relationships, evil rulers, wicked governments, tragic accidents, wayward children. Right? The list can go on and on and on. Broken marriages. And, and there's unanswerable questions that even the wisest person will never be able to answer. And there are times where we can feel completely directionless. And this is why we need God's wisdom which is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes has been exhorting us to. But, like GPS, wisdom, it will guide you only so far. There's a limit to even our own wisdom. Think, think of what, what John just read at the end of this passage. Look at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. Even wisdom has its limits in this fallen world. There's still unanswerable questions. There's still sufferings and struggles. There's still things that we can't comprehend. And so as we come to, to chapter 8, 
this morning, we're, we're seeing that, yes, we need God's wisdom to walk through this confusing world. It, it is like a GPS that, that guides us, but we also have to recognize, as the preacher shows us, that wisdom isn't enough. We need something greater than God's wisdom. Namely, we need God himself. And so that's really the, the purpose of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. The, the preacher is exhorting us to, on one hand, pursue God's wisdom in these different scenarios that we'll walk through, but also when that wisdom has its limits, we have to trust God when we can't navigate our way. And so we're exhorted to, as we walk through this passage this morning, we're exhorted to four things that, that we need to follow as we, we seek to navigate this world wisely. First, value wisdom. That's number one. Number two, keep the king's commands. Number three, fear God. And number four, be joyful. Value wisdom, keep the king's commands, fear God, and be joyful. And if, if you're like me, as I was studying this week, I thought, hasn't he already said all of this stuff, right? So if you've been with us through Ecclesiastes, this is, a, this is repetition here. And I think maybe what he's doing, sort of the, the centerpiece of the book was last week. So this might be sort of a, a, a summary of, of all of the book of Ecclesiastes. But also, it's amazing if you take a step back and think about how much of the Bible is repetition. Repeating the same themes over and over again in different ways, applying them to different situations. Because God knows that you and I are quick to forget and slow to listen, right? So I, I think of uh, the quote from Martin Luther who said of the gospel, he said, most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's, like a, that's how Martin Luther talked, right? But that, that's similar to what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is doing with these themes. He is beating them into our heads continually, pounding these things into our hearts that we would know, one, the wisdom of God, but more importantly, the God of wisdom. That's what he's driving us to in this chapter. So as we jump in, let's jump in. Verse 1, number 1, value wisdom. Look at the first half of verse 1. He says, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? So he begins with this proverb telling us that that godly wisdom is desirable but rare. Who is like the wise? Who can be wise is essentially what he's saying. And he's asking two rhetorical questions. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Who can apply wisdom? Now he's, not, he's not saying that wisdom is completely and totally elusive, that nobody can find it. He's simply pointing out in this proverb, in a poetic way, how rare it is to find true godly wisdom. And just as a reminder, what is, what is wisdom? Well, in the, in the biblical sense, wisdom is the skill of choosing the right path. We, we could call it, if we, we just want to give a really short, concise definition, the skill or art of godly living. That's what wisdom is. And so when we think about it that way, right, that's very different than our sort of modern understanding of wisdom that equates it with knowledge. What the preacher is not talking about here in Ecclesiastes or in Proverbs, or what the scriptures, as they're talking about godly wisdom, is not the accumulation of knowledge and more information. That's not what he's saying, because we know there are plenty of smart people who are not wise, right? And, and you and I also both know how easy it is to gather information. Information 
in that sense, head knowledge is actually not that rare. I wonder how many times you had a question this week, you thought about it for three seconds, and then you pulled out your phone to the almighty Google, right? Information is at our fingertips. That's not the same as wisdom. Gathering information is not the same as godly living. See, the skill and art of living a godly life of true wisdom is a rare commodity. That's what the preacher is saying. Thus, it is extremely valuable. It's, it's something that we should treasure and pursue. So to, to give an illustration, it's, it's not like apple picking in New England. Anybody gone apple picking yet? My family has done that, right? Apple picking is fairly easy. You, you, you get the bag. If you go at the right time, if you go too late, you're eating all the stuff that my two-year-old already took a bite out of, right? But if you go at the right time, you get the bag, and you just go down rows, and you pick apples, and you fill that bag. It's very, very easy to gather apples. And the same is true with information. And, and for us as, as Christians or people in the church, in the sort of religious world, we can, if we're not careful, equate listening to sermons, reading books, going to Bible studies, sort of gathering information about God. We can equate that with wisdom before God, and they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. See, finding wisdom is a lot less like picking apples from a tree and a, a lot more like digging for a diamond that's hidden deep within a cave. It takes time and intentionality. This is why Solomon says elsewhere in Proverbs chapter 2, My son, if you receive my word and treasure my commandments with you. Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. That is how we are to pursue wisdom. The skill of godly living. To put it very practically, that means... It involves putting down the phone, right? turning off the, the TV, digging into the scriptures. It involves opening our lives to other Christians who can speak the truth to us, even when we don't want to hear it, to build us up and sharpen us. It, it means seeking out more mature, godly, wiser, seasoned saints, followers of Jesus, and learning from them and gleaning from them. It's something that is extremely valuable and hard to find. But it's not just valuable, it's also transformative. The, the second part of verse 1, he says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine. The hardness of his face is changed. Now he's not saying that Wisdom gives you good skin complexion, you know, like the Aveeno commercial or something like that. It's not what he's saying. It makes you attractive. None of those things. But what he's saying is that it transforms you from the inside out so that your whole disposition, your whole countenance is changed. It's different from the rest of the world. There's a brightness about God's people who walk in wisdom. So the, the wise person doesn't wander through life hardened and cynical and directionless. And let's be honest, as, we, if we've, as we've walked through Ecclesiastes, we've seen, haven't we, how easy it can be to be cynical as we walk through this life. But true wisdom gives a brightness 
to us. A sense of, of confidence that even, even though we don't know exactly what's ahead, we know the direction we're going is the right way because we trust the Lord. And so our hearts aren't hardened and neither is our faith, neither is our countenance. We're joyful and trusting as we walk through this life. I think of two biblical examples of this verse specifically. The first is, is Joseph. If you're with us as we walk through Genesis, we spent a lot of time talking about Joseph. Just as a reminder, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was wrongfully accused of sexual assault. He was forgotten and left in prison. But all the while, he pursued the Lord. He walked in wisdom, and the refrain of Joseph's story in Genesis is, and the Lord was with him. And Joseph had this countenance about him as he pursued the Lord's wisdom that was attractive to others. It made others take notice so that when the time came for him to interpret the dreams of his fellow prisoners, he was ready. In fact, I wonder, and some, some commentators agree, that Solomon may have had Joseph in mind as he, he wrote this verse. And who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? That's exactly what Joseph did. In God's wisdom, he interpreted a, a dream. So Joseph's a great example of this. But another, and really the greatest example of this, is Jesus himself. One who valued and treasured and pursued wisdom. Now you might think, wait a second, can, does Jesus really count, right? Because he was God. So didn't, the, didn't God just like download the wisdom from the iCloud into him, right? But listen to what Luke says about Jesus when he was young. Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew in wisdom. He sought the Father constantly, and there was a brightness about him that stood out. But here, here's, here's another thing that's more important about Jesus. More than being our example of wisdom... Jesus himself is true wisdom. As we follow the thread of scriptures, we see that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Paul says in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this is really foundational for us in this text especially to, to fast forward and see that Jesus is our true wisdom. Because as we move through this passage, we're going to hear a lot of good practical ways to walk wisely. But it's ultimately useless for you and I if we haven't encountered Jesus Christ, the true wisdom of God. If we haven't been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen King. Right? If we're not transformed by the gospel, then wisdom tips, it's just like picking apples and putting it in the basket. Right? It's not transformative. What God wants for us is for us to be transformed by the true wisdom of God by believing, resting, trusting in Jesus Christ. So there is a sense in which valuing godly wisdom and trusting in Christ are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. So value wisdom. That's number one. Number two, right? But that's just one verse. We've got to pick up speed here. Number two, keep the king's commands. So he moves on to another scenario here, and he gives this very specific example 
where the wisdom of verse 1, where, where wisdom is needed in real time. And he's talking to someone who is essentially a political advisor, political aide to the king. And he says, I say, verse 2, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Okay, So this is, this is to a, a, the king's advisor. And we know that this is not a good king. According to verse 3, it's a, a king who participates in evil causes. Verse 9 tells us that he uses power for the hurt of others. And so this, this presents a dilemma where wisdom is needed. Right? What do you do when someone in authority over you is acting in a way that's contrary to God's will? That's the question. And the preacher immediately says, keep the king's command. He gives a reason and a warning against two extremes. So here's the reason. Keep the king's commands. In the second half of verse 2, he says, because of God's oath to him. Because of God's oath to him. Now, the English Standard Version, which we use here as a church, has a footnote that says the phrase could also be because of your oath, meaning the advisor, to God. And that can be confusing, right? Well, which one is it? Those say two completely different things. But if you think about it, regardless, the point is the same, that God is the governing authority over both the king, who's acting wickedly, and the advisor, who's wrestling with this question. You see that? Because if it's God's oath to the king, it's a way of saying God has a responsibility and an oversight of that king. If it's the, the political aid's oath to God, then it's a way of saying you have a responsibility to God. In short, God is the ultimate authority above all governing authorities. Right? We, we see this in the rest of Scripture. Think of 1 Peter chapter 2 which says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You can equate that with this verse, keep the king's commands. Whether it be the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Very similar words from Peter. Yet there's still this tension. The preacher knows it and Peter knew it and you and I feel it. Right? This difficulty. How do I honor God when I'm under the authority of somebody who completely disregards him? And friends, while we have no, I don't think we have any political aids to a monarch in this room. Right? This does apply to other spheres of life. Right? It's very relevant as we relate to our government, as we relate to our employers, and even the authority figures in our own families. Right? This is an important question. And so the preacher says, keep the king's commands. But notice, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say that, submit and move on. He warns us against two common temptations, two extremes. That's why I would... I would call what he's, what he's advocating for here careful submission to governing authorities that God has placed in our lives. Now first, here's the first extreme he warns us against. So he says, keep the king's commands, submit to these authorities, but here's the, the warnings and the, the sort of caveats. He cautions us against hasty disassociation with the person in authority. Verse 3. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Right? So uh, think of that in a, in a workplace setting. 
what, what the preacher is essentially saying here is, listen, quitting can be the easy way out. It, it could be the path of, of least resistance to just quickly, you'll be, you'll be tempted to bail when things get tough. But remember, God is your ultimate authority. Okay? Don't be too quick to remove yourself from that situation. Think wisely about it. Consider how God may be using you, whatever the situation may be, to be a light in such a place. Consider how God is, is using that situation to grow and conform you into the image of, of Christ. Friends, such situations oftentimes are a, are a mission field for God's people. If, if every Christian hastily departed the workforce, the secular workforce or politics or, or culture then who would hold the light of Christ in such places? That's sort of the idea of what he's saying here. Be not hasty to go from his presence. We see this all throughout Scripture, friends. The same God who placed Joseph before Pharaoh, who placed Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, who placed Esther before Xerxes, who placed the Apostle Paul before Jewish and Roman authorities, is the same God who works in our situations as well. And oftentimes puts us in those places that we may accomplish his purposes. So he's saying don't be too hasty to flee in those situations. But there's also another extreme that he warns against. Second, so if one extreme is to, to flee immediately because the person in authority is doing things questionably or dishonoring God in the way they're acting, the other extreme would be to participate or to stand and do nothing. Right? And the preacher warns against this again in verse 3. He immediately after that says, Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. So as, as Christians, we must always refuse to participate in ungodly, sinful actions. See, this is why I use the phrase careful submission. It's not blind Submission, right? It, it requires God's wisdom because our primary allegiance is to Christ. There will be, there may be times when we have to say to that person in authority, as in verse 4, what are you doing? This is not okay, right? I'm not going to fudge those numbers. I'm not going to treat this person this way. Or I'm not going to sit by quietly on the sidelines while you treat others this way. Whatever it may be. So while the, the word of the king or the word of the boss may be supreme, what the preacher is reminding us here is that there's only one supreme king. Right? And we answer to him. So yes, keep the king's commands. But don't be too hasty to flee on one side. And don't take a stand in evil on the other. Okay? One example of this. I read about for the first time this week was a man named Helmuth von Molk. If you're German, you can help me with that pronunciation later. But he was drafted by Nazi Germany to work in counterintelligence. He was a devout Christian, follower of Jesus, and, and obviously as a result of that, a strong op opponent of Adolf Hitler. So he began to use that high position to rescue prisoners from certain deaths. He was essentially, essentially functioning as sort of a, a double agent, but he was on the inside. 
And eventually these efforts were discovered and he was charged with treason. And Michael Haken writes, writes a great book of love letters between Christian husbands and wives. And has this, it has Helmut's final letter to his wife Freya. And in that letter he, he describes his trial in this tirade against Christianity from this judge who's yelling at him. He says, the judge says, only in one respect does national socialism resemble Christianity. We demand the whole man. From whom do you take your orders? From the other world, Christianity, or from Adolf Hitler? Where lie your loyalty and faith? And of course, Helmuth responded by declaring his ultimate allegiance to Jesus and he was sentenced to death and killed. That's an example of, of a man who did not hastily depart, but he didn't take a stand in evil. He sought the Lord's wisdom and lived for God's glory. Friends, whether it's decisions that are going to cost us our reputation, which are certainly more likely for us in this context, or, or even our jobs, or, or ultimately our lives, we have to keep this in mind. We must neither flee hastily nor take a stand in evil, but wisely keep the true king's commands. That's our governing authority. And this isn't easy. This is, this is, again, this drives us to wisdom. It drives us to the end of ourselves. And that's why he says in verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. He's essentially saying, God will help you as you seek to make these decisions. Your own wisdom is not enough. You have to come a place, to a place where you trust in him, prayerfully searching out God's word to determine when it's time to carefully submit and when it's time to take a righteous stand. That's number two, and that leads us to number three. Fear God. Fear God. So value wisdom, keep the king's commands, fear God. Now verses 10 and 11, he describes another scene. It's a different scene now that showcases the vanity of life in a fallen world. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And he's pointing out this common injustice that we see, right? Wicked people go through life without any accountability whatsoever. They're even celebrated for their actions. And he's already taken this theme up uh, multiple times. He's talked about this in chapter 4, chapter 5. If you remember Pastor Clint's sermon last week, chapter 7, verse 15 says, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. We see it again here in verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. How do we respond in such situations? What do we do when this happens? It's discouraging. We might be tempted to think, is God really sovereign if he's allowing this to happen? Or if he is sovereign, is he really, is he really good to allow all this wickedness to go unpunished? Wouldn't he have intervened by now? That's how we're tempted to respond oftentimes. But the preacher instead draws us to a different response. Verse 12, he says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, 
because they fear before him. Fear God. That's his, that's his response to this question. He doesn't give a theological treatise for the sovereignty of God over evil. Though there is a time and a place for those. I have plenty of books if you want to read one. Clint does as well. Right? That's not his response. Instead, and this is, this is a very pastoral response to this. Instead, he tells us all will be well for those who fear him. Those who, who reverentially love and follow God. In short, don't despair when you see the wicked prosper. Instead, trust the Lord. Now our modern understanding of the word fear, I think makes this common biblical phrase hard for us. It's different than biblical fear. We tend to use it to talk about being scared. Right? I've been watching a lot of postseason baseball this week without the Red Sox, sadly. But they keep playing this trailer for the new Halloween movie. It, you know, like the Michael Myers. Uh, don't see it. It's, this is a church. I'm not, we can't talk about those things. But anyways, it's very, very scary. Right? A lot of jump scares, darkness, guy with a creepy mask on, knives. Fear. That's what we think of when we think about fear. And that, that's not the kind of fear that the Bible has in mind when it talks about the fear of the Lord. Now, do not get me wrong. The Bible is very clear that our God is a consuming fire. As the author of Hebrews says, God is a holy and just God and he will bring judgment to sin. We cannot be frivolous in our approach to God, but he's not this cosmic boogeyman. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. Instead, to fear the Lord means to be in reverential awe and worshipful wonder of him. That's what fear means, to trust him above all. John Bunyan wrote this great little book called A Treatise on the Fear of God. And in it, he draws this connection of fearing God to trusting him. And he gets this from Psalm 115.11, which says this, You who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And Bunyan comments on this and he says, Now what a privilege is this. An exhortation in general to sinners, as sinners, to trust in him is a privilege great and glorious. But for a man to be singled out from his neighbors, for a man to be spoken to from heaven by name, and to be told that God has given him a license, a special and peculiar grant to trust him, this is abundantly more. And yet this is the grant that God has given to that man. What he's saying here is everybody who trusts in Christ, everyone who is a follower and who fears the Lord has the privilege in times of confusion and pain and trouble to go directly to God as a refuge and strength and shield. And that's what the preacher is reminding us here. As we see the wicked prosper and see it, it seems like justice is not being served in the timeline we would like. Friends, where do you go in those moments? Do you go to try to immediately start to, to pick apart who you know God to be? Maybe he's not good. Maybe he's not sovereign. Or do you do as the psalmist says? You who fear the Lord, trust in him as your hope and your shield. He will walk you through these times. You won't get the answers to the, the questions that are in the secret will of God. But you'll get something better. You'll get the comfort of God's presence as you trust in him. When one of my kids wakes up frightened in the middle of the night from a, from a bad dream, 
oftentimes, you know, still asleep, incoherent. You know what I don't do? I don't sit them down and say, son, let me give you the rational argument for why your response to your dream is illegitimate. There are no monsters. I don't, I don't do that. What do I do? I bring him close. I pull him in. I say, I'm here. All will be well. Right? That's what a loving father does. And the child rests in both the firm power and loving care of dad. Friends, that's what the fear of the Lord is like when we have these unanswerable questions. He's saying, it will be well with those who fear the Lord. Now, how will it be well? Well, friends, it's a consolation to know that though we don't know when and we don't know how, we can have confidence that God will judge the wicked. Verse 13 says, But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. The author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 9, 27, friends, this is a verse to meditate on. As it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. As Christians, we can rest in this truth. When injustice and sin goes unpunished, and the wicked prosper in this life, they will not go unpunished in the next. God will make all things right. This leads us to, to another question. Right? If God is going to judge wickedness, what about you and I? Because according to verse 11 in our passage, all of our hearts are set to do evil, including you and me. So, so how do you and I know that it will be well with us? Friends, as we bemoan the wickedness around us, we confess our sins together every Sunday. We cannot ignore the wickedness within us. And this is where the, the good news of the gospel is essential. Because to ask, do you fear the Lord, is simply another way to ask, do you believe the gospel? And do, you, do you believe that God is the creator of all things? That he's perfect and holy and worthy of all worship? That he will punish the wicked? He will punish sin? And that all people, including you and I, though, though created good, we've become sinful by nature. From birth, all of us are alienated, separated from God, and hostile to God because of our sin. Therefore, we deserve this judgment on wickedness. But, and this is the good news, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died on a cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him, and rose from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. To draw them near as a father does with a son. And now God calls all people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ in order to be saved. Friends, do you believe the gospel? Do you fear the Lord? If so, it will be well with you. Whatever the situation may be. Psalm 85, 9 says, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. When we believe the gospel and enter into the fear of the Lord, not only can we trust that God will take care of all those injustices that we see around us, but we can rejoice that our own wickedness, our own injustices have been removed by Christ. What a reason to rejoice. Right? And that leads us to number four. Be joyful. 
value wisdom, keep the king's commands, fear the Lord, and be joyful. Verse 15 says, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil throughout the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So this is again one of one of the joy exhortations that the preacher has sprinkled in here. And I don't know about you guys who have been with, with us through this whole process, uh, this sermon series, but every time I see one of these like, hey, let me commend joy to you, it feels very disjointed, right? He's like, hey, guess what? The world's going to hell in a handbasket, but hey, be joyful, right? I commend joy. He's just talked about wicked rulers and unanswerable questions and, and injustice going unpunished, and it's like, Let me commend some joy to you, just to finish this thing off. But if you think about it, it actually makes perfect sense with the flow of the letter and the flow of this passage. Because what has he been doing this whole time? The limits of our wisdom have been driving us to God, right? That's what he's, he's been doing. The reality of crooked kings is meant to drive us to the Lord. The unanswerable questions of evil in this life are meant to drive us to fear and trust the Lord. He's been driving us to God. And as the psalmist says, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy and right, as right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it's as if he's, he's saying we have every reason to rejoice and to commend joy to one another. And as we, we take a step back and consider the good news of the gospel, friends, our sins are forgiven, our risen king reigns, and all will be well, why would we not rejoice? Why would we not commend joy? Doug O'Donnell writes on this. He says, while the wicked scheme against God, his church, and each other, the righteous are to sit down together and praise God from whom all blessings flow. We're to say grace and eat up. We're to host countercultural party after countercultural party. Hallelujah. He's talking about the Sunday gathering there. And then I love this. Listen how vivid this is. You don't take the Christian life to be like sitting on a block of ice, drinking sour milk as you wait for the 5 a.m. train, do you? I hope not. Certainly not. To me, as it should be to you, the Christian life is gathering together one day in seven at the very least to delight in the pre-fall fun in light of resurrection realities. Count it all joy is our wisdom slogan. Friends, yes, wisdom is hard to find. Yes, there are wicked authorities in this life. Yes, wickedness seems to go unpunished at times. But we are to count it all joy. And we're to commend joy to one another because we know God will make all things well. This doesn't mean we're, we're superficial and glib, right, as if nothing's wrong. Like, I know, no, I know your life's falling apart, but just smile your way through this. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, the opposite is true. We're, we're honest about our brokenness and sinfulness. That's why we're digging into this book. We're honest about the sinfulness in the world around us. We confront those things in the name of Christ. We grieve over those things, but we, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with joy because we know our God will make all things right. So we say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as we walk through this world, that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Be joyful. In closing, I think of 
How as we walk through 1 Peter, this was a theme in Peter's writings as well. He says in 1 Peter 1.8 to suffering Christians who are wrestling with these same questions in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's our hope as Christians. No matter how directionally impaired we may feel in these situations in life, as we walk through this dark world, in Christ our hope is sure and our future is incredibly bright. So may we lean into our insufficiencies that drive us to the sufficiency of God as we pursue wisdom, as we keep the king's commands, as we fear the Lord, and as we rejoice our way to heaven. Let's pray together.